Well, thank you, John, for leading our service so well. And it's a joy to be with you to give God's Word. I've been asked to speak just once a month in the evening over the next five months. Not every Sunday evening, you will be pleased to know. And so it means that it'll be tonight, September, October, November, December. And I thought during that time we would look at some of the characters of the Old Testament as one way of complementing what Tiago is doing in the other times when he's talking about people who encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's been my experience of life to discover that great people, people of renown or of nobility or have achieved something and are highly respected, are usually simple people. By that I don't mean that they're silly or stupid or senile, but rather that they're straightforward and uncomplicated. They look at a task and they seem to know the answer to it straight away and they get on with it and then other people say, oh, aren't they great for being able to do it? The man we look at this evening is one such character in the Old Testament. By now you will know who it is because I've read about it to you. His name is Caleb. And he set about a humanly, absolutely impossible task at not 80, Pat, but at 85. And that was to capture some land that God had promised to him some 45 years before and in the presence of witnesses. I want you to come with me. First of all, to look at the text this morning, uh, this evening, which is in Joshua 14, verse 12. And here is this man Caleb coming to claim what he thinks is rightfully his. He says to Joshua, Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me in that day. Forty-five years uh, before. Just a couple of things that we can take right off that story at this particular time. One is that this man for 45 years nourished the hope that a bit of land in Israel that it looked on the surface was impossible to be able to come his way one day would be his. He believed that nurtured that hope and had no doubts about it whatsoever. Is not that an incredible thing? What about your impossibilities or things that are on the horizon that look, oh no, God couldn't do that, surely. The other thing to notice is the fact of his age. Now, most people, when they get to 85, like has been suggested there, perhaps putting their feet up at least, and maybe go a little further and find that they're waited on by the NHS. But this man seems to have some kind of vibrancy about him. Growing old is not something that naturally we would want to do, but something that we can't avoid. 
You young people here tonight who think you've got all the energy in the world, you've got all the brightness of intelligence, and you can work out those funny little things you carry around in your hand all day, and I can't understand them at all. But then that's to be expected, I suppose. One of these days I might even get me a smartphone, but I don't know what to do with it if I had it. But you're going to get old too. Yup, you'll get looking like me, even. I don't wish that on anybody, but it's going to happen because we all grow old. The clock ticks and there's nothing you can do to stop it. I rather like the prayer, which I call the seniors' prayer. It's really a shortened version of the nuns' prayer. It goes like this. Lord, thou knowest better than I know myself that I'm growing older. Keep me from getting too talkative and thinking I must say something on every subject and on every occasion. Great weakness. Release me from craving to straighten out everybody else's affairs. Teach me the glorious lesson that occasionally it's possible I might be mistaken. Make me thoughtful but not moody. Helpful but not bossy. For Lord, you know I want a few people to come to my funeral service. I want for there to be some people at the end of my life who considers me their friends. That's a lovely prayer. If we could mean that, it would mean something to us. You see, we must not stop living in order to grow old. Otherwise, we will grow old because we have stopped living. So just those two things taken straight off the top, namely the passage of time which we have to come to terms with, and also one man's great faith who hung on to a promise for 45 years without blinking. Now, before we get into the actual story itself of this man, Caleb, I think we need to investigate his origins a little bit. Look at his ancestry. Last night, my wife was downstairs in the living room watching television. She was watching that program. I think it's called something like, um, Do You Know Who You Are? She's got a great history of going into family history, and she's done a wonderful job on her side and on my side. I haven't contributed awfully much to it, but it's worth reading, I tell you. But last night she was watching one of some celebrity, I think it was Kate Winslet. Last time I saw her, she was being drowned in the sea when the Titanic went down. But she looked pretty healthy to me on the television. But I didn't stay there. I was upstairs getting ready to talk to you. So I didn't see it. So if you want to know all about the history of Kate Winslet, you'll have to go and ask my wife. But when it comes to ancestry, I could really do with, when it comes to Caleb, those researchers that they have who really do all the work, you know, for the people who are being investigated, these so-called celebrities. You see, it's a mystery about Caleb. If you go to the book of Genesis 15 and 19, you will discover that the Kenizzites 
were a tribe of people who were in the land of Canaan long before, Moses, uh, before Abraham went there. And the Israelite people started with Abram, who was called by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees, come out of what today we call Iraq, and come and live in the promised land. He was the founder of what we call the Hebrews, or the Jews, or the children of Israel. But the Kenizzites were there already. Which means this, that they were Gentiles and not Jews. And yet in our reading that we had tonight, this man Caleb is very closely associated with the Jews. So how come? Well, I offer you three explanations, but I wouldn't like to bank on any of them completely. You can own mind over it, but I do favour the latter. The first one is that the reason that Caleb was accepted amongst the Jews as a Jew was that at some point during the course of his life he had been adopted by them. He had come into a position of believing in one God. He was a monotheist. He believed in Jehovah, the one true God. And the Jews believed that. And he had come to believe also that the Jewish people were God's people. And he wanted to be one of them. And had great faith in this living God of whom we've been hearing. But uh, how? I don't know. All I know is that that's one explanation. I mean, there were others, of course, like Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He was a Midianite, and yet he was part of the household of God. Rahab, she was a Canaanite, and if you remember, she was also a prostitute. But God adopted her into the family of Israel, and, and she's even mentioned in the chronology of Jesus. And then further, there was Ruth. She is very special because she was the great, great, great-grandmother, I think, of David, through whom Jesus was born, in his lineage. And she, Ruth, was a Moabite. And then there was the one who was a leper. He was a Gentile who came into the Jewish faith, and he was a Syrian. And there are others that could be mentioned, like Abed-Melech and uh, Itai the Gittite. That's one explanation, that somehow they had faith, the kind of faith that the Jewish people required in God in order to become one of them. So they were adopted by him. Another one is that they, it wasn't to do with the fact that he came from the Kenizzites ancestrally. Rather, that he came from the Kenizzites because of the kind of people they were. Kenaz, the founder, his name means uh, hunter, hunter. And the Kenizzites were people who were hunters. So it could be that Jephani, Caleb's father, was known as the hunter. And he was just Caleb, son of Jephani, the hunter, rather than of anything ancestral connected with him. In which case, he could have been a Jew himself. 
He had needed to be converted and to add it to the Judaistic line because he was already there among them. Another possibility, and this one I really favor, is the fact that when the Israelites were in Egypt, you may remember they were made slaves by a pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And it was a tough life that they had. But God raised up Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. But at that time, these people were not the only slaves that the Egyptians had. They had lots of other slaves captured from all other countries that they themselves had captured. And so we read that after the 12 plagues had taken place, and Pharaoh relented and said, all right, I'll let your people go, Moses. There was a mixed multitude, the Bible says, who went out of Egypt with the Jews. And they went out over the Red Sea. They'd celebrated Passover. Now they were going across the Red Sea and into the land of Canaan, hopefully. It didn't quite work out like that. And they were part to blame for that because in Numbers 11 it tells us that when they got right out into the wilderness and there was a shortage of food, you remember God had provided the manna, that enough and it was lovely. But they wanted more than that and who was it that wanted it? It was this mixed multitude. Numbers 11 tells us they cried for food or flesh to eat. So the people complained to Moses. But these mixed multitude, all they would say was, we remember the leeks and the melons and the onions and the cucumber and the garlic. They remembered all the nice things about Egypt, but they forgot they were slaves. Anyway, what happened was that um, Moses turned to the Lord, as he always did as a godly man, and God guided him and quails came over in abundance. They had so much food to eat that it was coming out their ears and it was meat, not bread, this manna. So after that, they would have gone, this mixed multitude, with the other people to Kadesh Barnea, where the whole race was going to be subject for 40 years. And of course, Caleb and Joshua were part of that. Which of those three do you prefer? <laughs> that he was adopted? That he was never ever a, um, a, an ancestral Kenizzite anyway? Or that he was a Kenizzite, but he was absorbed into the Jewish way of life? So it really is a little bit of a sticky problem, but one can't be fully reserved, yet at the same time, it's worth thinking about. So let's go back to the time when the promise was given to him. They had reached the place of Kadesh Barnea that was in the wilderness. They were going to be there an awful long time, but they didn't expect it at this moment. Moses chose 12 men, one from each of the tribes. The interesting thing is that Caleb was chosen. One of the mixed multitude, perhaps. One of the past people who were converted to Judaism. I'll leave it. But Caleb was one of the tribes. One of the uh, spies. When they came back, ten of them said, of course, that they could 
not attempt to try to conquer the land. Whereas two of them did. Joshua and Caleb believed it was possible. Caleb said, we can certainly do it in the Lord. You see, what happened was that ten of them measured the giants against themselves. Whereas two of them measured the giants against God. Ten of them had great big giants, but a very little God. The other two had a great big God, but they had very little giants. Ten saw God through the eyes of the giants. But two of them saw the giants through the eyes of God, and to them they were but pygmies. The ten trembled at the thought of attacking. in the prospect. At that time, the people wanted to go back to Egypt. And Moses said, because you don't want to go into the land of Canaan, you can stay right where you were. And for 40 years, that's where they remained, wandering around. God said of Caleb at that time, my servant Caleb has a different spirit. And he follows me wholeheartedly. So that Joshua, who came to supersede Moses as the leader of the Israelites, and Caleb were the only two of that generation who came out of Egypt that actually were going to go into the land of promise, flowing with milk and honey. What kind of different spirit did Caleb have? Well, I believe it was like Abraham, who Paul says in Romans 4.21, Abraham was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That was Caleb. He really did believe that in the God of Israel. Well, 45 years later, the Israelites have moved into Canaan. A miracle has taken place like they got over the Red Sea They've also got over the River Jordan. And they come to the heart of the country, to the town of Gilgal. And Joshua has to do his leadership job, and he begins to allot the land to each of the 12 tribes, with the exception of Levi, who that tribe was the priestly tribe, and who would look after the tabernacle, and in later times, the temple. So as he begins to allocate this land, his old friend Caleb comes along, can't wait for him to get the job done, and he says to him, give me the land God promised me 45 years ago. Come on. And Joshua wouldn't in any way resist that. And he gave him the place of Hebron at 85 years. Friends, what an example this man is to the young, particularly the Christian young. I have to say, sadly, that when I was a young Christian, I looked to some of the older members of the church I went to at that time, who seemed to be so grumpy, who always complained about things, who were never satisfied, and who were always arguing amongst each other. I kind of said to myself, you know, I don't want to grow up to be a Christian like that. Oh, there were others, of course, who really lived for Christ, who were wonderful examples like Caleb. 
Let's take him as a great example of faith and hope. There are three words, I think, which sum him up to me as we talk about this character. The first one is realism. Do you know what they say about the church out there in the world? They say it's so heavenly minded that it's no earthly use. They do, really. A lot of those people who are non-Christians but socially minded and very keen do a great deal for society. They uh, provide roof over the heads of some people, help them with housing, moving house, help them with regard to getting to and fro the hospital. Many of them are really hard workers and they're not Christians. Whereas sometimes it's said of us evangelicals, we lock ourselves away in our little churches and have lovely meetings singing hymns to God, but do nothing. This can't be said of this particular man. And it can't also be argued against us as a nation, because in earlier days, the reformers, people like Bernardo and Wilberforce and Pitt and Rakes and many others, did wonderful works in the name of the Lord, and our society, what remains of it, its strength lies in those reformations, in our education and our health service. But this man was realistic. Look, he was realistic concerning the enemy. If you look at verse 12, you'll see he says of the enemy, you yourselves heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. He knew what he was up against. Sometimes we need to do that to really assess what we're up against. The cities were fortified. They were on hills, which made them very, very difficult for people to attack. They were easily able to be defended. The occupants of these cities were Anakim. If you go back to Genesis 6-4, it tells us about a race of giants that were born. I don't know whether they were these same Anakims, but they would have been men of 9 to 11 feet tall. That's huge. A bit like Goliath, and a bit like Ishbibenob, who we read of in Scripture, who also needed to be taken down. When we regard who we face as an enemy, oh, how realistic we need to be. Scripture teaches us that our enemy is really the world, the flesh, and the devil. Concerning the world, William Temple, the Bishop of Liverpool, once said this, the world would not hate angels for being angelic, but it does hate men for being Christians. It grudges them their new nature. It is fomented by their peace. It is infuriated by their joy. They get angry. They get jealous of what we have. And they tell us we're just smug when we say we're saved. They don't consider that we say it only in the sense that, oh, we're so undeserving of that privilege. The world, by and large, is against you. Jesus said it hated me and it's going to hate you as well. You're going to find persecution and trouble in the world. So get ready for it if you're going to be a Christian. 
Somebody said I didn't know what the world was in its opposition until I did become a Christian. Well, that's not surprising, is it? The world has nothing to fight against if you're going along with it. And then there's the flesh. Listen to that great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man who you would call as great in the Victorian age. There may be persons, he says, concerning the flesh, who can always glide along like a tram car on wheels without a solitary jerk. But I find that I have a vile nature to contend with. And spiritual life for me is a struggle. I have to fight from day to day with inbred corruption, coldness, deadness, barrenness. And if it wasn't for my Lord Jesus Christ, my heart would be as dry as the damned. He knew something about inward battling with the flesh. And what about the one who is the insidious liar behind it all, the devil? Well, let's listen to a quote from a man called Vance Havner, an American Bible teacher of yesterday. He said, Satan is not fighting churches these days, he's joining them. He does more damage by sowing tares than ever he did by pulling up weeds. He accomplishes more by imitation than he does by outward opposition. My only statement about this realism concerning the enemy is this, that if you know no battle, I would question whether you're a Christian at all. He was realistic, this man Caleb, concerning himself. Look what he says. In verse 11, he says, I am still as strong today as when Moses sent me out. Now, he doesn't necessarily mean that he could do what he did when he was 40. He was a man who God kept very well in physical. But he couldn't do what he was doing when he was 40. There's no way. But it didn't intimidate him. However, what he felt was that the problem that God had given him in conquering this land, he was still up to the job. I'm 85 years old. No. He's really saying, I've got 85 years of experience. I'll show those youngsters a thing over there in Hebron. But his confidence didn't lay in that. Just as in the same way, Samson's strength didn't lay in his hair. It lay in God who was giving him the strength. That was but a symbol of the strength that God was giving him. And this man knew that too. And he wholeheartedly followed the Lord. Verse 9, verse 11. He actually says this, The Lord helping me, I will drive them out. Oh, what a man. What does it mean to serve the Lord wholeheartedly? Do you? Do I serve the Lord wholeheartedly or more likely half-heartedly? What I would suggest it means is this. It means to obey the Lord when he speaks to you without question. It means to follow the Lord sincerely 
honestly, truthfully, so that you yourself would be saying, this is true of me, with no sham, no deceit, and no hypocrisy. It means serve the Lord in a cheerful manner. With gladness, not madness, like some people seem to be guilty of in our service. <laughs> but gladness. And the way that comes about is being thankful for everything. When you see life through the eyes of God, you can see all that he's doing for us. And we can be abundantly glad in the Lord. And it also means to keep on with the Lord in spite of all the setbacks that we're likely to have. He's also realistic concerning his God. The Lord had promised him this land. Now let me give you four great statements and affirmations in the Bible about the God that we come to. And then we will never doubt his promises. 1 John 4. Uh, John 4.24 tells us God is spirit. That is, he's not to be depersonalized. He is eternal spirit. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light. He is perfect purity. He shines out. That God is love. 1 John 4.8 and 16. He's not a sentimental being as we tend to be. He's a God willing for sacrifice if it comes to it in his love for sinners. And God is fire. An all-consuming fire, consuming evil in those who do not repent, as we were hearing this morning. And God hasn't changed. There's only one God who has existed from eternity to eternity. Although eternity has no end. So tonight I ask you the question, what is your Hebron? What is it that you're going to claim from God? What is it that is there? Your ambition, your test, your wholeheartedness that is needed. The other word I've got is not only realism, but it's reward. When we go over into chapter 15... Verse 14, we read this. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, descendants of Anak. From there he marched against the people living in Deba. And then he went up against Kiriasipha through that one called Othniel. What was he doing? He was possessing his possessions. They had been given to him by God and he was saying, well, this is what God has given me. This is what I'm going to get. Obadiah says this in verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance, its possessions, what is given to them. And there is so much reward in our Lord Jesus Christ that we have inherited through our faith. Look at some of the things that were true of Caleb. He had the blessing of Joshua, first of all. We read, and Joshua blessed him. The name Joshua means Jesus. Both words mean saviour from sin. 
And one in a way was pre-shadowing the one that was to come. And Joshua came to his position as leader after the death of Moses. And the Holy Spirit, said Jesus, could not yet be given because he had not yet been crucified in John 7. So it wasn't until after the death of Jesus that a new beginning could start in the church when the Holy Spirit would come from out of his innermost being. In our own Christian lives, if there's going to be any kind of further motion for God's glory, then there's got to be death to self in our old life so that his new life can take possession of us. Then again, he had the courage of his convictions. That was a reward. He didn't just talk about it, he did it. So many conferences on evangelism, on discipleship and Oh, why don't something get done? <laughs> he had a... That was a... to capture Hebron. He knew what he wanted. He was a simple man. A business exists to make money. A church exists to make disciples. That's our task. There is a warning in this story. However, the other tribes, the ten failed to drive out the inhabitants that were in the land. They simply settled down with them, became comfortable with them. They did what was right and easy in their own eyes. They intermarried with these people and they introduced their own false religion to the true faith in God. And God's anger was upon them. Oh, friends, let's not be like that must be wholehearted if we're to get our reward. And then there's the word reaction. How did it all work out? Well, first of all, Caleb gained a son-in-law. The hand of Axa was offered, his lovely daughter to whoever it was that would um, conquer um, kiriath Sefer. And uh, it was done by one of the relatives. In fact, it was done by Caleb's younger brother, now, we countenance today in our law that an uncle could marry a niece. It's against the law. But in those days, remember, the Israelites were not allowed to marry outside themselves. And there was no law to condemn this at this particular time. And anyway, how did Caleb know that it was going to be his son-in-law who would conquer it? So he had a son-in-law as well as a brother to be proud of. And it was a great blessing to the family. He also gave them as a wedding gift springs of water, 25 springs, 10 wells in the most fertile place of where they conquered. Where was that? Hebron. And you read a great deal in the scriptures about that town. And most of all, and this to me is why we've looked at this man as our character, he gave a supreme example. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and verse 11 says this. These things occurred in the Old Testament as examples, both as a blessing and as a warning. And in this series I'm doing, we shall look at some people who were raised up, well-known, 
but not for their good and not examples to follow, but those that we should go out of our way as much as we can to avoid being like. What's your mutual challenge as you face the future? What is it that makes you tick the thing that really is a challenge from the Lord? That's why I was so pleased to include um, our friend who told us about that challenge she had and even that her could tackle that. Well, that was a human thing to do. But it may be something spiritual. Don't hang back in anything that God has got for you to do in his name. Be a Caleb. Be wholehearted. Not half-hearted.